Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. This week's scripture reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-11. through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, sometimes life throws us a curveball, but sometimes it opens up a sinkhole. Maybe these last few months have felt that way to you. I know we're beginning again to have freedoms we didn't have for a while. We know the pandemic continues to go on. A virus doesn't tone it down just because we're tired of hearing about it. Many people suffering the ravages of the disease and many more the pain of losing a family member or having someone they know who's suffering. And then there's other losses. And I think the things that we're seeing now are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of emotional and psychological toll that this situation can take and will take on people like our frontline workers or medical staff or children and parents who are facing disruptions to education systems, teachers and other support staff who are anxious about going back to school when they're not sure whether it's safe to do so. There's anxiety and there's fighting over the best measures to take and if those responsible to lead through the crisis have taken the correct ones. I read yesterday that a lot of chief medical officers in many states have resigned in the last few months because of the pressure on them and the fighting that is directed toward them. We already know that some businesses are closed and will not be able to reopen, and others may take years to recover from the losses they've experienced. So collectively, as a world, I think we're living through such a time when life has not just thrown us for a loop, but it seems like the bottom has dropped out and we're wondering just how far this crater descends and what the jolt will feel like when we hit the bottom. And not only that, our personal lives don't seem to have gotten the memo that the world is in crisis. So we still have struggles and strains and even breakdowns in our relationships. We get sick or people we love get sick with other ailments and sometimes they die from them. And we still suffer from the ravages of anxiety or depression. 
Now that we can drive again, our cars continue to break down and our pets still make messes on the floor, and so on and so forth. Our personal lives and our private struggles have not taken a time out just because there is a pandemic raging. And it turns out that all the struggles that we're enumerating, the suffering that we're laying out and describing, however incompletely, are not at all new or novel or unique to us. The dizzying effects of living through something we have never really lived before might obscure the fact that many people have suffered in many different times and in many different ways since the dawn of the human race. In fact, if you really think about it, we actually live in rather comfortable times and comfortable places. Many of us have recognized that this pandemic at this time in history at least brings with it the connectivity of the internet or social media or Zoom or other platforms, telephones that allow us to keep connected with loved ones far away, that allow us to enjoy church services from our homes if we must, that allow many people to work remotely. Not only are we able to stay connected in many ways, but at least those of us who live in this part of the world have comforts that probably would have seemed like magic to people just a few generations ago. Over-the-counter pain medicine to help us with headaches and fevers, good furnaces for the winter and air conditioning for the summer, online shopping and curbside pickup, not to mention a functioning mail system, ensure that we can order what we need, probably many things we don't actually need as well, from the comfort and relative safety of our homes. Cable and satellite and Netflix and Disney Plus make it so that we can stay entertained. We have many things, indeed, that make us far more comfortable than many people throughout most of history and even other parts of the world today. But by saying those things, I want to make clear that even so, we still experience suffering, and sometimes great suffering, and I'm not trying to minimize that. And it turns out that as far removed from us is the Bible in terms of time and geography and way of life, I know that the bingo cards you keep in your purse for my sermons include a space for somewhere where I say, in the ancient world, unlike today, or something like that. But as different as life was back then, one language that we speak that people in the ancient world would absolutely have understood perfectly is the language of pain and suffering. Indeed, in the ancient world, just like today, sometimes life threw them a curveball, and sometimes it opened up a crater. And it is into one such crater that we will tumble this morning to see what wisdom we can bring up out of it, what we can glean from another who has gone through tremendous suffering that might help us today. And this particular crater belongs to none other than the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul, for all that he is a towering figure in the development of Christianity, writing a good third of our entire New Testament, he did not, in fact, go through life from strength to strength, winning victory after victory. As scholar and, biblical, and theologian N.T. Wright so eloquently puts it, anyone who ever supposed that Paul sailed through his apostolic work carrying all before him in a blaze of glory can never have studied 2 Corinthians. The letter that we have before us today 2 Corinthians is one of the more difficult letters in the New Testament, not necessarily because of the things it has to teach us, but because of the circumstances out of which it came to be. Paul had, for a time, been riding high in his life and his ministry. Now, of course, everywhere he went, he faced opposition for his work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He often would begin proclaiming Jesus the Messiah in the Jewish synagogues in every city he went to. And in the city of Corinth, Paul's ministry in the synagogue was so effective that the leader of the synagogue actually became a devoted follower of Christ himself. Other Jewish people in that city were not so convinced, however, and eventually the Jewish community decided that Paul should find another place to do his preaching and teaching if he wanted to keep talking about Jesus, and so they kicked him out of the synagogue. Paul obliged, but the offer of a place to meet right across the street from the Jewish synagogue was just too good to pass up, and so Paul set up a church right then and there, right across the street from where he'd been preaching, which, as you can imagine, led to more opposition to him. But despite all of that, the church in the city of Corinth began to thrive. It became a lively community. Paul spent approximately 18 months in Corinth, tending to his new flock, and that's the second longest of anywhere he ever stayed, according to the New Testament, before he went on to the city of Ephesus. When he landed in Ephesus, his ministry there began well as well. It was strong and it was flourishing. Now, he'd still face people who didn't like what he was doing, And sometimes those people express their hostility through arranging arrests or complaining to government officials or physically injuring Paul. But generally, Paul was used to facing these pesky persecutions, and he found joy and purpose and meaning and accomplishment for his Lord Jesus in the victories that he was winning through leading individuals to know Jesus as Lord and shaping the churches that he founded. But all of that changed when he ventured back to Corinth for a quick visit to his fledgling congregation there. Now, Paul had written to them the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, but it was not well received by that congregation. And things went south and quickly on that particular trip. There was quite a lot of opposition to Paul and to his ministry, and there were rumors circulating and aspersions cast And probably there was at least one person who was openly hostile to Paul who confronted him during that visit. Realizing that he had made a mistake in making this visit, Paul beat a hasty retreat back to Ephesus, hurt, angry, and confused. His ministry had thrown Paul a curveball with the sudden and seemingly unexpected souring of his relationship with the church that he had founded and pastored and still held dear in Corinth, But life did not hold off just because he was nursing this wound. It seemed that Paul managed to land himself in jail in the city of Ephesus. Now, not much is described about this in the rest of the New Testament, so we just kind of have to piece together how this came about. But there's good evidence to support the fact that he was in jail in Ephesus for a time. And jails in the ancient world, you can get out your bingo cards now, they were nasty. Not that they're good or life-giving places today, but... People were not sent to jail as a punishment. In fact, they were holding places until a person was tried and received their sentence. Provisions were never given to prisoners, so they had to rely upon friends or family members to provide them with even food, water, and basics like clothing. Jails were often overcrowded. Beatings were frequent. People were physically chained. There were vermin, fleas, lice, and these were all part and parcel of being jailed. So between what happened between Paul and the church in Corinth and him managing to land himself in jail in Ephesus, the bottom just dropped out of Paul's world, and he entered his own crater. In fact, the way he describes it in 2 Corinthians sounds almost like we would call a clinical depression. 
Again, here are the words of N.T. Wright. He says, at this point in his life, Paul enters a dark tunnel, the tunnel between the cheerful Paul of 1 Corinthians and the crushed, battered Paul of 2 Corinthians. The black night, when ahead of any actual judicial decision, Paul heard deep within himself the sentence. We have no idea what precisely occurred, but he got to the point where he despaired of life itself, he says. So Paul finds himself in a crater when the world, when the bottom dropped out of his world and he goes to a very dark place. Now after a time, again we're not precisely sure how long, Paul is released from prison. And while that nightmare begins to fade, although he's likely still haunted, at least for a time by what happened to him in prison, the rupture in his relationship with the Corinthian church still loomed large on Paul's heart and mind. Now he could have abandoned the church, He could have written them off as hostile and the relationship as unsalvageable. He could have hid behind the hurts that he experienced at their hands, the emotional wounds they opened as a reason to stay away from them. Paul does have friends in other places, and he certainly could have retreated to friendlier territory. But instead, he picked up his pen and begins to write a letter to the church in Corinth. And his very first word to this church, interestingly, is a word of comfort of consolation and encouragement. Having crawled out of his own crater, Paul, first and foremost, wants this congregation to know one of the deep truths that he discovered there, the truth that the God of, is the God of all comfort, and that God is still there, even in the deepest, darkest places we can imagine. And again, when we spoke about freedom last week, we, or freedom gained by forgiving people last week, We said that it's much easier to listen to somebody who actually had something to forgive when they talk about forgiveness. And I believe the same is true with suffering. From the pen of someone who's been there, who's been in such a dark place that at one point he felt like he had received in himself the death sentence so that he despaired of life itself. What he has to say about the reality of God's presence in the middle of the darkness rings far truer than someone whom we know has never really been there. Now here in this chapter, as throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul wishes first and foremost to change our idea of suffering. Some, in modern times, we call it reframing. You see, the world tends to love us when we're at our best, when we're bright, shining, and winning. But when we do not get to those places, when we don't have any success to report, or an illness derails our best laid plans, or our company is downsizing, or we struggle with anxiety or depression, or our relationships bend to the point of breaking, or our children go astray, or we lose the money we put into the stock market, or we make that one decision we wish we could take back, and we find ourselves suffering. Well, we tend to be a whole lot less valuable in the world's eyes, don't we? And that sentiment has begun to creep into the church, too, to the point where I think we're quite happy to pray for people who are struggling, but we don't want to pray for them for too often. And we sure wish they would just get over with, over it and give God the glory and get on with winning. It becomes, comes to the point where suffering becomes something we tend to hide, that we speak about in only whispers, that we confess rarely and only to those we really trust, and sometimes not even to them. And to be honest, the church in Corinth had fallen into that kind of trap too, This congregation, or at least a good number of them, had begun to believe that Christians in general, 
and apostles in particular, should be successful and impressive and convincing and eloquent and winners. In fact, when I I took a class from N.T. Wright himself about this book, and he says that uh, people in Corinth wanted to make apostleship great again. And that at least was part of the problem that these people had with Paul. Paul was scarred. He was probably scarred on both his face and his body from being stoned and beaten and whipped at various times. And not only that, he'd been involved in something in Ephesus that had landed him in prison. Should a Christian church want to be associated with someone who's so controversial, someone whom trouble almost seems to follow around, someone whom we can only describe as on a losing streak in his life and his ministry? But instead of trying to hide his suffering or put a cheerful face on it or even tell them how his suffering was not actually that bad after all. After all, Paul actually wrote a number of letters to churches when he was in prison. And those words we still read today in the books of Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. And in those letters, Paul sometimes did do just that. He talked about good things that happened even though he was in chains. For instance, in the letter to the church Uh, In Philippi, Paul tells them how being in prison actually helped him to reach people who had not previously been able to hear the gospel. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul takes the opposite tack, and he puts his suffering on full display for them. He admits it. He tells the truth. In fact, he has at times even been accused of reveling in his suffering just a little bit. But he puts that right in front of them. He puts it front and center in the letter, even leading off with it in the introduction to the letter. And I believe he does this for a very important reason. Because Christians, both then and now, often seem to get it into their heads that if God is on their side, then we will sail through life unprotected, or protected, pardon me, untouched by pain, able to pray our way out of any trouble or tight scrape, that we will always be happy and prosperous. People in Corinth, or at least some of them, seem to have been seduced by this version of life in Christ. And we certainly don't have to look far to see how it permeates the church today. But Paul's suffering taught him something quite different. One thing that Paul cannot get over or get past is the shadow of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ The way that Jesus suffered for us is proof that someone who has God's favor and approval is not immune from suffering. In one of the more agonizing moments in the entire New Testament, God's own beloved son prays that he will not have to drink the cup of suffering set before him. And the answer from heaven is no, you have to suffer. And when he's hanging on the cross... Jesus cries out those words of agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Paul is so convinced by the suffering of Jesus on the cross, he actually believes the people of Christ should be so marked as well. So suffering for the Christian is not something to be avoided at all costs. Because if we call the crucified King Jesus our Lord then we can no longer be beholden to philosophies that promise release from all trouble and suffering here on this earth. Instead, Paul says, suffering draws us to Jesus and forces us to rely upon the God of all comfort, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. In a verse that seems to set the tone for what follows in the rest of the letter, 
we read this, and this is uh, from Eugene Peterson's The Message. It says this, He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. We have plenty of hard times that come from following the Messiah, but no more so than the good times of his healing comfort. We get a full measure of that too. So that's 2 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. So Paul begins this difficult letter, which seems itself to be, have been dragged out of Paul in bits and pieces, as N.T. Wright puts it, in an attempt to repair and reaffirm a ruptured relationship with this church that he planted after being pulled up from his own crater of despair. And Paul starts out by trying to reframe the idea of suffering. Paul says that suffering isn't something we should hide. It's not something to be ashamed of. He doesn't allow us to think that it's a punishment or judgment from God. Instead, when we suffer, we realize that we are not alone. So many people in this world experience suffering, and our pain can be a way for us to understand and to draw close to and to light the way for others who also suffer, especially people who suffer in similar ways to what we have done. Lots of people have pointed out that the best people to minister to someone who have cancer for, has cancer, for instance, is someone who's gone through it themselves. And in fact, while the translation, you may have noticed when I read it, that word comfort was repeated over and over. I heard it was there ten times in five verses. But another way to translate that word is actually also encouragement. Although we suffer, we still encourage one another because suffering and encouragement go hand in hand. Not only that, when we suffer, we're not alone, because when we suffer, we are closer than we think to Jesus, who hung on a cross. And as we share in Christ's suffering, Paul says, so also we share in his comfort. So Paul's wisdom, drawn from his own darkness, and spoken to an as-yet unsettled, conflicted relationship, is first of all to help people see their suffering in a different light, and to point them to the God of all comfort, when, and it is always a when and not an if, when they suffer. Judith Deal, in her commentary on 2 Corinthians, makes the following suggestion, a way that we might start reframing the issue of our own suffering in our lives. She writes this, When we suffer, we can make a request to the Father of all compassion to please let this experience count. Let it count to making me a better person. That means asking, what do I need to learn from this trial, and who can I help because I had to go through this? Applying that prayer to our world today, perhaps we can spend less time on the questions of why the world is going through what it's going through, spend less time researching conspiracy theories or finding out who is to blame. Instead, perhaps we ought to begin by praying, Father of all compassion, please let this experience count. Let it count to make us a better people. Let it count to help us build a better society. Let it count to make us more caring as a church. Let it count to help us find new ways to reach out to people. Whatever else happens, let it count for something. From the crater, Paul brings up the news that when we suffer, we are not alone. And suffering, far from being a sign of God's displeasure, can be made in God's economy to count. Would you bow with me in prayer?
God of all compassion, we come before you today. There is much suffering in the world, and there is much suffering in our lives. We know that you see it all, and we thank you for the comfort we find in you, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. As we go through these times of difficulty and anxiety in our personal lives and in the life of the world, we pray that above all, whatever we are going through, that you would make it count. Because we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. As you go this week, remember that no matter how frightening the world may become or how frightening the individual circumstances of your life may be today or may become tomorrow, Remember that God is with you. God goes before you to guide you, beside you as your friend, behind you to protect you, beneath you to support you, and above you to give you courage and hope. Remember these things, and remember this also. The peace of Jesus Christ, which passes all understanding, is with you. Amen. Go in peace.